0: Hello and welcome to this Glass Tire podcast. I'm Brandon Zek. This is the 5th in a series of 5 podcasts that we recorded live at the 2019 Satellite Art Show at the Museum of Human Achievement in Austin, Texas. Satellite is an art fair dedicated to showing young dealers, artist-run spaces, and nonprofits, and this inaugural Austin event ran concurrently with South by Southwest. In the DIY spirit of Satellite, we set up shop in a van outside of the fair and used it as a sound booth to record these podcasts. This episode, recorded on the pair's fifth and final day, was guest hosted by Rebecca Moreno, an artist and curator based in Austin. This episode features a number of different interviews. Rebecca and I talked with Satellite performance artist Sarah Sudhoff and exhibitors Anna Rankin, Daniel Lisi of Floatland, and Sherry Littlefield of Treat Gallery. Finally, we talked with Annalisa Benston, Satellite's producer. But before all that, let me introduce Rebecca. So we are sitting in the back of a van in front of the Satellite Art Fair on its final day. Goodbye, Satellite. Goodbye. And I'm Brandon Zek, and you are our guest host for today.
1: Yes, Rebecca Marino. Yeah. Looking for a name. Yeah, looking for a name, searching (laughs) for a
0: name. Uh, Tell our listeners a little about who you are, why you're here, what your connection to Austin is?
1: Well, (laughs) uh, I am an artist. I am also the associate director for the galleries at Texas State University. I used to be the gallery director for Pump Project, currently finding a new home base. I was also the co-founder and co-editor of Conflict of Interest in Art and literary publication and i love the museum of human achievement
0: which is is where satellite is being hosted you actually i know there might be a little bit of talk about this later on the podcast but you actually participated with pump project in uh an early edition of the satellite art fair in miami yes tell me just a little bit about that and about your history with satellite and your experiences
2: oh
1: man such an awesome experience we went to uh the ocean terrace version of satellite which was an artist-run satellite fair uh, in Miami. Uh, And they basically found this abandoned hotel and um, all artist run spaces around the world. Everybody got like a hotel room and we ran during the fair. Everybody like kind of transformed the space. I mean, this was like legit, like an abandoned hotel that had been abandoned for a while. And everybody really, like, band together to kind of make the space tolerable and, you know, conducive to what we were all trying to do. And it was really awesome.
0: So uh, tell me a little bit about your work. You make sculptures, you make photographs, mm-hmm. you make other things.
1: All kinds of stuff. I'm really interested in, like, bigger cosmological questions, but relating them back to our everyday and more intimate relationships that we have I because I was trained in photography I like um, kind of poking fun at the medium and our idea of what's true and what's false and real or not and um, you know others preconceived notions of photography because it's a strange sort of medium to work in and a lot of the time not considered a fine art so kind of using that as a way to like manipulate the medium
0: in line with the issues you're interested in, mm-hmm. you're also... Uh, you just got back from Montreal. Yeah. And you were in a show in Montreal. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that show and that work.
3: Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, it's art... Souterrain which is a they call it an art festival although I feel like you know after experiencing it it's so much more of just like it's like a citywide exhibition that takes place in the Montreal underground and part of the reason I say that is because it's thematic and every year they have a theme for it and this year it was true or false and so the work I had in that was it was called it's a body of work called the best available evidence it is kind of using the subject matter of UFO sightings, again, as a way to sort of like question our idea of what's real and not and what is considered evidence or proof and this tug of war between like cynicism and hopefulness almost. And so, but you know, it's funny because there were a couple kind of like conspiracy theory themed works there but a lot of it was actually just like kind of messing with the space itself so it was almost kind of like a scavenger hunt a lot of the time there was was like I saw all these stanchions and I was sort of like well this is kind of weird but also just like a bunch of stanchions like I had like one of those like moments where I was like my mom and was like is this the art, like, and <laughs> as we're like, they're like, is this the this question is, that like, we always make fun art? of with
0: people well, having, no! and you actually had <laughs> I it?
1: I know, that I was that person, and I was like, oh fuck.
0: Yeah.
1: But yeah. Anyways, I can't. We've, speak we've more all had highly. that moment. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I can't speak more highly about, um, the event and the work that they did, and it was, it was, it was really special. I just never seen anything like that before. But their whole mission is to kind of introduce contemporary art to daily life and the general public and so they have these people that are like there at all the different pieces throughout the stations and that are like approaching people and talking to them about it. It was really wonderful.
0: And so I'm not going to let us ramble on for too long because you have a couple more interviews and I have a couple more interviews in this episode. So we're just going to get back to it. Uh, It's the fifth day of satellite, the final day of satellite and here it is. Thanks Thanks. for guest hosting.
1: Thanks for talking to me. (laughs) I actually didn't see the performance, but he told me a a little bit about it, but do you want to kind of, it was fucking cold.
2: Yeah, I'm just going to tell you that. Yeah, so it's been at least five years since I've done that performance live, Mm -hmm. and it came out of the fact that I was running out of breast milk when I was breastfeeding my first child, who is now just turned seven this past week, Mm -hmm. or... two weeks ago and so the performance is called surrender so I was surrendering to what my body could or what it was capable of Mm -hmm. and having to supplement breast milk with formula and um, when Quinn invited me to participate in this fair she said you know what does the performance mean to you now how's it changed is it something that you still want to perform and I said yes you know when I created the performance and the couple of times that I did it I was either breastfeeding or pregnant and then breastfeeding. So I was in very much living that life, and now it's been you know over five years since the last time we performed it, and looking back at it, you know it has changed for me. And thinking about how difficult that time was for me and how challenging it was, but now looking back and thinking how lucky I was to have those challenges. Because a lot of my friends who are in their 40s can't have children, or can't breastfeed, or can't adopt, or all the above. And um, my brother and his husband recently had a child through a surrogate and they're buying breast milk. You know, there's also that aspect of it. it, it it's watching family members of mine go through these um, less traditional modes of having um, children or families and uh, the struggles that they're going through. And so even though my struggles then seemed so tremendous to me, in reality, they were not. And um, again, I was very lucky to have those um, experiences and I was just talking to someone inside and she said that she had two women sitting on either side of her watching the performance and one said that she was watching the milk melt all over me onto the floor and thinking that I was longing to have children and then the older woman saw it as my children were growing up and leaving and I was longing or missing them or losing them and so I thought it was very interesting that they had two different perspectives that were um, not that they weren't intended, but that wasn't the, um, the reason that the performance was created, but that they were able to see or bring their own ideas and thoughts um, to the performance by watching it. So for, for because
1: this is a podcast and also because I wasn't here for the per- yeah. can you describe a little bit what the performance actually sure. was?
2: Sure. I'm sitting in a chair. I'm holding about 24 ounces of frozen breast milk. And for those of you that have never seen what frozen breast milk looks like or how it's stored, you put it into a plastic bag, um, a breast milk bag that has a particular shape. Um, and it's about eight ounces if you fill it to capacity, which most people actually don't do. So I sort of overfill these bags. I freeze them. And then on the day of the performance, right before it got started, I broke open the bags. I'm sitting in, the chair, in a chair nude, and I have the um, blocks of ice, which are actually blocks of frozen breast milk placed in my arms and i cradle them as if i was holding a baby or breastfeeding a child and so during the performance i'm looking at the blocks of ice i'm kind of looking at the floor i'm raising my eyes but not making um, i'm not catching anyone's eyes kind of looking around the room because a a lot about being a mother and about breastfeeding and during those first few months of being a parent, it's a lot of routine and monotonous repetition. And you also find yourself very isolated and you're supplying It's this great privilege to feed a child, but at the same time you're sort of, you feel sort of like a machine and uh, not like a person anymore. And so I kind of flow in and out of being aware of the audience and not being aware of the audience and sort of zoning out and zoning back in because that's very much what it was like rocking in a chair feeding this child that's not responding to me, except suckling. Um, But there's no other communication and spending hours upon hours alone. And also, in my case, worrying about being able to produce enough milk. And so every drop for me that I lost was somewhat disappointing or um, upsetting to me. And so during this performance, I'm watching the milk run down my legs, down my arms, and onto the floor. And the last time you did this was five years ago?
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, man. I mean, like, well, so... What was that like to do it now, later?
2: Well, this. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I mean, it was very challenging one because I'd forgotten how painful the ice is. Yeah, it's so painful, and you can only I can only hold the ice for about forty-five minutes to an hour, and it it shrank considerably, but it still I was sitting in one kind of contained position, kind of fidgeting a little bit to get the milk to flow or to like maneuver the, the blocks so I can melt a different side because you could actually see my hand impressions in the mil, in the ice mm-hmm. um, after so long. So it was tremendously cold. I, I, like I said, I had forgotten how cold it was, almost like you forget how painful childbirth is. But then um, you add on top of that, it happened to be freezing here on Friday and the wind was whipping through the room. And so everyone that was watching was cold and then I was um, even more so, and uh, I honestly did not know if I was going to be able to hit an hour, which was my goal, but I really did have to zone out and kind of, um, I do yoga, and so I was doing this breathing technique, um, trying to calm myself, but also heat myself up at the same time. So I was doing that, and I doubt that anyone could hear me breathing, but I was breathing pretty heavily to try and um, get through it, get through the pain.
1: Did you hear her breathing? I did not hear
2: Sarah <laughs> breathing. But it was in four counts hold, out four counts hold.
1: What about, like, emotionally, though? That's kind of more what I was asking. Oh, of yeah. like how, ha- Like, because you did this, you know, closer to when you had it, you know, when you had just had your child. So, mm-hmm. like, what was it like doing this performance?
2: Not being so, so emotionally. Yeah, 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 and yeah. I had to, yes, I was not as raw and as vulnerable and as emotional as, say, the last time. Because I had just given birth mm-hmm. and, you know, was... in in the midst of breastfeeding. So this time around, I had, in some cases, I was reliving or thinking about those earlier times and what that was like to go through. And like I said earlier, being very thankful for those moments. And, you know, people, you know, as a parent, you're like, oh my gosh, seven years. I can't believe it's gone back in a blink of, it's gone by in a blink of an eye, but I was purposely reliving some of those moments. And it was so painful on Friday that I was thinking about the birth of my child my first child and it was 27 hours of labor and how painful it was and um, i literally went there because it was it wasn't that painful but it was reaching that level of pain and of intensity of freezing in a room with ice blocks on my arms so to the point where, you know, when I pulled the ice blocks off, my arms were blue and it took me a couple, you know, several minutes to thaw out in the back. But, and then just emotionally, also just thinking about how much I've gone through in the last couple of years with my children. I got divorced and I'm a single mom now. And so all those things were kind of circling through my head. So yeah, the performance is very different for me now, but I can still place myself back in that space. But, um, you know, I'm not the same person anymore, so. Yeah.
1: Um, Especially like knowing a lot of, I know a lot of artists here that are also parents. Can you speak a little bit to that, like struggle with this of like being a, a mother, like especially a single mother and also being an artist and juggling that or like.
0: A lot of people claim that it's not conducive to that but <laughs> that, that being a, a parent and an artist isn't conducive but well, I've I'm, seen so many people make good art about absolutely. being parents and then also found find a way to make it work and they are more successful now that they are a parent and it's almost like adding someone to your team in yeah, a way it's outside. a different
1: time now though but I mean like uh, back in the day you know if you were a mother especially a single mother just being a woman and like going to a gallery and being really like oh you can't handle this. You know, like m- we would represent you, but we're not going to because, I mean, like, you're a mom, you know, like that was a thing. And, you know, even though it's not as much as thing now, it's still like a mentality that has still never, exists. Yeah, it still yeah. exists. And it's a uh, because it is like a,
0: a job. And it's nice to see galleries and institutions make efforts to show work about that, like Sarah, your performance here at Satellite. Uh, Janine Antoni just closed at the Contemporary Austin. And one of the sections of that show was Motherhood. Motherhood.
2: But, you know, what you were saying about artists being more successful as parents, I feel that I'm a more successful artist now because I am a parent. Um, I am the master of multitasking um, and I don't have the luxury of working on multiple projects at one time. And so I have to very carefully curate myself. And research and do a lot of time thinking before I get to play and I have to carefully consider my subject matter and materials and possible collaborators and I'm also in the position now where I can't make work unless it's been funded by a grant and so which also makes me solidify um, and clarify my intention my goal what the project is about and so in some ways I'm more a which sounds completely the opposite of what you would think.
0: It makes you very deliberate in what you're doing. Yes, exactly, because
2: I have to be, because I have to get it funded. I have X amount of hours and then I have to produce it all while working a full-time job and being a parent.
1: Yeah, I think that's just about, I think, like, having that drive. You know, it's like anybody who struggles with having a job and also being an artist, you know, it's like either you have that in you or you don't, you make it work or you don't right because it's what you have in you
2: and um you know i'm i've always been interested in performance art and that's something that i'm thinking more and more about just because of my time limitations Mm -hmm. and being able to how how can i affordably create something and don't have to store it necessarily Mm -hmm. um or store a few aspects of it and uh so performance i think will start being more and more a part of my practice. Just some frozen breast milk. That's all you need to yeah, do. Just yeah, storing now. that shit. <laughs> you just get a freezer, it's well, no I, 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 uh it was graciously donated, so. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Nice so I well. put a call out, and a friend yeah. uh, called and said, I've got a freezer full, come by. Very cool.
0: It's counting, it's going. All right, we're right. going. She's an
1: exhibitor, interviewer. I was gonna say, who are you?
4: I am Anna <laughs> Viscara Rankin, A.V. Rankin, mm-hmm. and I am an exhibitor here at Satellite. Excellent, was, uh, which space are you with? I am in the space we're fondly calling the gray space. Okay. I have a bunch of maps, mm-hmm. mostly astronomy maps. Uh-huh. So I have the old school large Egyptian map with the goddess of night mm-hmm. and the geocentric Solar system, mm-hmm. and then I have all the colorful oil paintings of nebulae. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so, where are you from? I'm originally from Uruguay, we're mm-hmm. here from Philadelphia. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. And who's this? This is my daughter, Sierra, and this is the first time she's done an art fair with us. Really? Uh, she turned nine months uh. on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Sira, this
1: actually I, when I got pulled into this car, I was told I was going to interview. The baby <laughs> so how's your first art fair been anything got anything to say about it absolutely <laughs> 100% I can doesn't even need that to say look anything. you know in the eyes it's all in yeah. the eye yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> so what have you what have you thought <laughs> how has Austin been
4: Austin's been good. We've been staying about 10 minutes away in East Austin. I haven't been here in about 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, so you'd never been to Museum of Human
1: Achievement before, though?
4: It, yeah, it was this was before my time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I love venues like this. It's mm-hmm. really different from my usual stomping ground, you know our um, organization that is hosting us here <laughs> we have done a couple of shows in an old horse stable uh-huh. that's about seventy-five hundred square feet mm-hmm. and has a similar vibe mm-hmm. but usually i'm you know showing in white cube spaces so right. this is always a good time yeah it's, i think it's so and much it's, more it's interesting it's a good the crowd cont- yeah, yeah
1: yeah 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 like the con it gets so the context gets real tired real quick of, like, where you show your work. Having challenges and it always and looks the
4: same. It's mm-hmm. kind of nice to see it in different contexts, mm-hmm. uh, especially since we were able to paint the space not white. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so simple, right? <laughs> yeah. It, I think it makes everything pop yeah. to have a, a neutral background. Mm-hmm. And more and more people are changing mm-hmm. the color of their space. So I think it gives them an idea that you don't need a white, painted, whitewashed house Mm. to display artwork nicely, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk um, a little bit more
4: about the work that's being shown inside? So, yeah, I mostly work with maps and mapping, and the work that we chose for this show are mostly astronomical maps. Mm -hmm. So there's a a very large piece (laughs) that's Sierra's favorite. Mm -hmm. It's 8 feet by 8 feet on 100% cotton canvas, Mm -hmm. and it's mixed media. It's shown unstretched because maps are folded and unfolded. So it is uh, speaking to that tradition, which is nowadays we just use our phones, right, for Mm -hmm. GPS. Then I have about a half a dozen oil-on-panel paintings that are astronomical, Ah! nebulae. Um, A lot of folks think of them as photographs, but they're actually showing emanations that are not visible to the eye. So they're they're non-visible such as x-rays and hydrogen emissions and Mm -hmm. sulfur image emissions i started working with uh, the hubble images but now there are a lot of individual astrographers out there that have access to this technology so i made friends with some of them um, online and they send me images and i work from them Um, and then i have a handful of uh, works on paper that are actually on drafting film, so they're translucent, and those are made out of graphite and gesso, and they're really almost ephemeral looking, even though they're very long lasting. And it's all, you know, laborious, <laughs> intricate work that Sita helps me out with by giving, <laughs> making me take breaks. <laughs> is there yeah. anything
1: specific about the astrological that you're interested in? Is it just an aesthetic thing or a conceptual thing, or is it a mixture of both, and how so?
4: I chose. Uh, Kind of an astronomy theme for this show. Mm -hmm. But I I really, I work with maps. So I I would do world maps Just really into mapping. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm more of an astronomy than an astrology person. Yeah. Um, Same. So I'm I'm more interested in the science than Mm -hmm. the divination.
1: It seems like you're very interested in Wavelength. I mean, the different variations of it and what we can see and what we can't see and why. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah. and, And how it affects us and where the science ends and the magic and the whimsy begins.
0: So tell me who you are and tell me a little about
5: why you're here and what you do. My name is Daniel, Daniel Lisi. I'm with a virtual reality development studio in Los Angeles called Floatland. We were invited by the Satellite Art Fair to showcase uh, some virtual reality pieces. We were collaborating with this painter in Los Angeles named Petra Cortwright. And she's a fairly young emerging talent who's having a, a lot of success right now in the LA scene and just a general contemporary art gauntlet right now. And we, we had the pleasure of taking her work uh, and spatializing it into a virtual reality setting. And it's a project that I'm very excited about. So this is the first ever public viewing of it.
0: So one of the things that I, I, I experienced this work earlier today. Um, and one of the things that I really liked about it was that You know, when I've done virtual reality in the past, sometimes it's not that reactive or you can't actually kind of control things and it's not really fine-tuned, but almost like the gyroscopic sense of being able to control and float around in the space that is this digital painting essentially, uh, you were able to kind of really engage with it in a nuanced way, and you said that's something that the studio has been really working on
5: Yeah, yeah, Uh, so the movement system was pioneered by our partner Ben Vance, and it's something that I think is really integral to the kind of work that we've decided to do, which is taking a traditional visual artist and placing them into this new virtual reality setting and so the question comes up of how do you traverse these spaces and in a spatialized setting you have not just the x and y planes but you're also dealing with a z axis and so essentially the logic was copying a segue uh, how a Segway behaves mm-hmm. um, which is like doesn't initially seem intuitive but once you start doing it it it's becomes second nature pretty quickly for a lot of different people too which is cool to see because usually with like maybe different generations trying to like get into video games is a good example like where someone will pick up a controller and it's not immediately uh, obvious what to do or it's the not intuitive it, it's less intuitive it takes a lot more right to to figure it out or to engage with it but with this you're just leaning and moving in a direction that you want to move toward so yeah we've developed this system uh, anywhere that you can look at you can lean toward and you can gravitate your your body toward that direction
0: i feel like the only way i can really talk about vr is comparing it to past vr things that i've seen and of course that's so hard to do because the landscape is constantly changing and the the slightest change of new technology can immediately make everything else obsolete Mm -hmm. having that control and being able to control a movement movement rather than just having the ability to look around is really nice but also i found myself getting lost in it Mm. in a way that has only happened a handful of times with other VR experiences, and I think it's because of that mode of control and of actually doing what virtual reality is supposed to do, which is transport you to another environment.
5: Awesome. I'm so glad to hear it had the effect. So a number of projects that I work on are exclusive in the startup world. Uh, So I work with a lot of different partners creating structures in new media. Mixed reality has been an industry that I've been engaged with for the last four or so years.
0: What's the difference between mixed reality and virtual reality?
5: So I suppose mixed reality is what encapsulates all of this practice. Mm -hmm. So it's virtual reality as well as augmented reality and I guess the broader term would be spatial, spatial computing. So mixed reality is just an easier way of saying all of it, all of this stuff. So I've worked across five different structures now uh, inside of this space, uh, either consulting or helping build out operation structures uh, for teams. And I've been with Float now for uh, the last two and a half years, working with Ben and Kate and um, a a big impetus for me joining their team was that I, I have experience in the contemporary art world and we were trying to figure out how to build bridges between galleries and our studios so that we can create these new artworks and I also work in book publishing, so uh, almost the exact opposite of virtual reality. But it's a a great pleasure to be able to work with such a spectrum of uh, creative material and get a lot of different perspectives of different people working in these creative fields.
0: So what brought you and Float to Satellite? So, of course, wanting to premiere this new artwork, but farther than that.
5: Yeah, I think it was our friend and uh, this curator named Kalani Nicole, uh, who's a very talented curator who's killing it just in digital art across the board right now, who's now based in LA as well. And I think she made the connection between us and Brian, uh, the fair director here. And so they invited us. And the invite came in as we were starting this work with Petra. So it seemed like a good motivation tool to kind of set this deadline that wasn't just purely arbitrary. But it's like, oh, we have this show now, which which I like just to kind of have a target for something yeah. in the future. It'll light
0: a fire under you a little bit. Exactly. Yeah.
5: yeah. And um, and we love we love traveling and we love traveling even more when it's, uh, for artwork. I love coming to cities with the intention of exhibiting or engaging with other creative communities. Uh, it's one of my favorite ways of experiencing a new city is, is through its art world. Well,
0: and then there's also a little bit of a connection, at least. Right now is the music part of South by Southwest, but South by Southwest does have kind of a strong tech presence maybe a little less of an art tech presence but there's still a connection there
5: yeah certainly a tech presence and yeah kaleidoscope was out here with the xr house for south by southwest and so they had a lot of activity out here and they're a group that we've have a lot of mutual work with so yeah there's a uh, it, it felt right uh, to, to come out here and, and see what's happening
0: any final thoughts?
5: I, I feel like I'm still learning Austin. I've only been here twice now, and I just keep getting new perspectives on this space, and I feel like the city itself is changing so much. Uh, so I'm very fascinated to see what it turns into. It seems like it's emulating a lot of what has happened in San Francisco and New York, so I'm curious to see how much of its like cosmic cowboyness it maintains throughout this uh, this development period.
0: I'm sitting here
5: in front of
0: the Satellite Art Fair in the back of a van, and you are exhibiting at Satellite.
6: Yes, my name is Sherry Littlefield, and my gallery, Treat Gallery, based in New York City, has a space here at Satellite for the first time. So tell us
0: a little bit about Treat Gallery.
6: So Treat Gallery is something that started about three years ago, and it's a gallery that has the intention of giving back to charities and nonprofits. Every exhibition we have donates a portion to a specific organization, whether it be No Kid Hungry, um, and to cyberbullying, which is one we've done, you know, Project Semicolon is a show that we did. So there's often theme shows that benefit a specific nonprofit that's tied in, or we actually have the artists select a nonprofit that benefits through sales of their work.
0: Do you have a space in New York, or what's kind of your strategy for organizing and putting on shows?
6: We don't, we're like an online gallery, so we have pop-up exhibitions, but that works really well. You know, very low overhead, we just hire people when we need it. But a lot of people kind of believe in the cause, so they will volunteer their time or even their art or their share of proceeds to a nonprofit. But um, I work as a gallery director for a photo gallery in New York. I do keep the two pretty separate um, just because I don't want one to like ride off the success of the other.
0: Mm
3: -hmm.
6: But, um, But yeah, I do like curatorial work independently. I'm an art dealer and I'm an art buyer. So... I do. That's, that's a good combination. Yeah. So you're getting
0: it on all levels. Really.
6: Yeah, and it really helps with organizing the tree gallery stuff because I've done much uh, large scale projects in comparison to this, and it, you know, is easy to manage. It's it's good. So
0: how do you find working for like two different types of galleries that operate on two different levels? Because there's a Patron base in New York that there isn't in a lot of other places, but also, you know, I imagine the two places you work at are serving completely different clientele.
6: It's very true. Um, the photo gallery that I'm a director at, we we cater a lot to like corporations or like corporate entities. So, um, you know, Tree Gallery really caters to like the individual buyer. We try to keep the work under a thousand dollars each. A real sweet spot for work is typically under $300. Like we try to show emerging artists, but also make work affordable for like a young buyer. Where at the gallery I'm at, the average piece is probably like three dollars to $4,000. But you know, you just have to, I don't want to say that you're like selling something fake because I don't view it that way. But you want to make sure that you're providing a piece of art for something or for someone who loves it. Like not someone who wants to turn around and resell it. Like both galleries kind of share that. And my boss at the gallery I'm at, it's called Foley Gallery in New York City. He's a really great guy, and he's honest. And, I, you know, it's good to work for someone like that to have a good example to what you can mimic with
0: something like this. I mean, that's... You know, you're, you're touching on how we get into the larger conversation about the art market and the various problems of buying oh, art yeah. as an investment or as a tax write-off or yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the collectors that buy things because they truly love them and want to live with them, especially the collectors that buy the maybe more problematic images or sculptures or the hard-to-store, the hard-to-live-with, the hard-to-display seem to be really rare, but those people are so genuine as well.
6: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. We do meet people who just ask, like, oh, like, how much can I sell this for in five years? Or they want to know if there's stuff like in the secondhand market with it. It's just, it's kind of, it's kind of heartbreaking in some ways, because you want someone to genuinely like the work and to not just turn around and kind of
0: view it as something else. So. Yeah, of course. So how did you get to New York? Were you born there? Did you come to New York for something? So um, did college and
6: everything in Florida, which is where I was born in Wisconsin, raised in Florida. And then my first job out of graduate school was in Atlanta. So my husband and I were both in Atlanta for about three years. And we decided we wanted to live in Chicago or New York. So we just applied for jobs, and we both heard back from different jobs on the same day. We We just got married. Like, you know, my apartment lease was ending and it was like, let's go to New York. Like, let's do it. So we love city life. We love not having to have a car. There's so much culture there. There's so much to do there. So that's how we ended up there. And I'll probably die in New York.
0: Was Treat started before you went to New York or was it kind of a response to things you were seeing or what brought it about?
6: Treat Gallery was a response to things I was seeing in New York. I think that there's so much corruption in the arts and... There's so many art dealers that lie to their artists or they say they sold things at a discount, but they really didn't. And they pocket that percentage. And that's really hard to watch. You know, I kind of pride myself on being like honest and genuine. And I really like helping people. And part of me is like, oh, I don't want to sound like self-righteous and stuff. But like, I think it's really important to help people if you're able to. So even though Tree Gallery is not my, you know, full-time thing, I do put a lot of heart and effort into it. And, you know, we were able to give over $2,000 one year to, like, a bunch of nonprofits that really helped with it. We've gotten some really nice handwritten letters, um, a nonprofit that we've worked with before, which is No Kid Hungry. What they do in New York City is they provide meals for students under the age of 18 who, are unable to get meals over summer or winter break when school is out of session. A lot of these kids only have meals like when school's in session, otherwise they don't eat regularly. So seeing like exactly where the money goes to, that's helpful for the artists, that's helpful for the nonprofit, and we're just like super transparent with everything. I think if there's a way to give back especially through art, something that people kind of feel is a snobby field and probably rightfully so There's a lot of snobby stuff in it, you know, I think that's great.
0: So what brought you to Satellite? Have you done the Satellite Art Fair before or?
6: A friend of mine actually did the fair in Miami. Um, and I go to Art Basel every year, which is like a big art fair in Miami that happens. And I, I went for the first time last year and I thought it was kind of like an interesting do-it-yourself Kind of thing in a in a good way. I think that's,
0: um, someone has said that in the podcast before, and I think that's that's really yeah, what satellite prides itself it, on. It's
6: it's extremely affordable. I mean, if you're organized, I think it's fine. Like I came ready with a drill. I came, I, I emailed a bunch of you know potential clients down here. Like I have a whole system mm-hmm. where I've, I like kind of set myself up for. You success. do your homework. Yeah, so I did all of that, um, and it's really not much different than you know, working at a higher end fair, like freezer armory, like you have to contact the people, you have to know your audience, you have to present the booth in a way that is clean and professional. Um, You know, it's not much different, honestly. Like maybe I wouldn't be rocking the pink hair, maybe. And I wore (laughs) jeans the other day, I probably wouldn't be wearing jeans at higher-end fair, but...
0: But th- you have to know your market, and you have to fit yeah. in and be relaxed enough, yeah. too. Yeah, Treat
6: Gallery would not do well at Freeze <laughs> Art Fair, nor do we have $50,000 for a booth at Freeze. so when you have something like this at a fraction of the price, and this is our audience, this, these are the people that we want to see the work, to have our work. Yeah, there's um, a
0: there's something to be said for reaching the casual art collector, or the person yeah. who doesn't know they're an art collector.
6: Yeah, so when when I saw the call for entry, I actually um, connected with Brian on Facebook because he posted a, a funny status. Um, you know, Brian Whitley, the, the founder. He just said like, "Oh, like, do you, I hate Facebook? Do you need Facebook to do stuff?" And I sent him a message, and I was like, "You know, like, our gallery, not Tree Gallery, but Foley Gallery. I'm like, we do a lot better when I'm on it because you're actually able to invite people to events and it reminds people about events." And um, I was off Facebook for eight months last year. And it was great, but like, you sign back on and you realize like how much you really miss. Like a friend of mine passed away. It's made away it self and necessary. I di- and I didn't know yeah. that. I'm like, why didn't anybody bother to tell me mm-hmm. that? Like, what? Um, everyone assumes you already know things that yeah. happen. Yeah, in the or world. people forget yeah. to like invite you to things, and it's like, oh, like I invited everyone on Facebook. I'm like, I'm not on Facebook. That's off tangent, but. <laughs> no, that's good. But yeah, um so how I found out about it is that I messaged Brian with that and I saw on his timeline that he was coming down here. And I was like, "Oh, I should I should check that out. Why not?" So, here we are. So
3: you're the producer for uh, Satellite Yeah, arts? I'm the producer for Satellite Art Show. Um, my name is Annalisa Benston, and I've been with Satellite for a few years now. I originally started as a, an exhibitor. I went at what to, space? Uh, for Satellite in Miami. In Miami? Yeah, yeah. So the first four we did were all for Miami Art Basel, and then this is our first one outside of Florida here in Austin. So
1: I actually participated as an exhibitor you in did? the Ocean Terrace version okay. of Artist Run for the Satellite nice. in uh, Miami
3: what year was that the first first one or this last year it was probably the first one because they brought it back it was in the abandoned hotel because they yeah they brought that back two years ago that was
1: so much fun
3: it's very cool to have a space that kind of like no rules at all because it's uh, like you said abandoned and and it has all these issues you're able to sort of manipulate the space without consequence Mm -hmm. (laughs) people can kind of go at it and not feel bad about you know drilling holes through walls and making passageways and doing oh, all kinds yeah. of cool stuff like that. It's pretty rare, I think.
1: Were you there for it? I wasn't there for the very okay. First you were one. there. There were people that had like so they just nuked the building, right? Like because I mean it had been abandoned for a while, like the hotels yeah. uh, had been, and so people found like. Birds that were kind of you know it was like there were some pretty weird stories about. Space.
3: Well, I mean, there's, not, there's nothing that says fun. creativity like finding some dead animals. Wow,
1: well, um, <laughs> there's nothing that says artist-run space like making it fucking work when yeah it's like a tough situation. Yeah. I mean, it was
3: weird too because there's bathrooms and they're non-functional, so you're just sort of yeah. like, okay, great, there's this bathroom, but I can't use it. All right, and then some people are like let's just close it off because it's sort of I don't want to have to clean a bathroom. The bathrooms, the bathrooms were gnarly were too i different, feel like to kind of level of homelessness that was happening up in there
1: i felt like the general kind of mentality was like uh we don't want it, we don't want to deal with it we'll put it in the bathroom because they didn't work anyway and everybody had one and yeah. it was like
3: on the flip side uh, when we did ocean uh no not ocean terrace when we did it might have been ocean drive is where i'm getting that messed up at the parisian it was the bathrooms were more were functional And it was really nice because people did exhibits inside of them because they were clean. It was a functioning Mm -hmm. hotel. A lot more limitations, but at the same time, taking over the tradition of taking over hotels goes all the way back to like the armory. Mm -hmm. The armory was originally in a hotel. That's just sort of a tradition. I feel like a lot of people have gone back to that idea of like unusual spaces because the space is affordable and it actually creates alternative options for learning how to creatively hang your work and how to how to manipulate. the viewers' experience based on these like other objects, like I had these posts in my room that I couldn't remove, you know, things like that. We're like, okay, well, I'm gonna have to deal with that lighting in a really creative way. I always like to describe satellite as like, so you think you can art, <laughs> totally. <laughs> so come out here and like, let's People give you a who new. know how to deal you, with those things. Let's give you a new challenge. You mm-hmm. know, absolutely. It's not a white box where you could just hang things at you know, forty eight, six fifty six inches, and yeah, yeah, or yeah. that even like. Yeah. Yeah, it's not an environment with teams of people being hired to to install work or, you know, pay per chair. you got to bring your own chair, totally. you know, things like that. But maybe some people don't understand this because the fair model is different across the board outside of satellite. So how
1: do you feel like from, like, what we're talking about to, like, these, like, to the ocean Terrace to this hop to
3: here i Museum of Human Achievement? How are you feeling about it? I thought this was really cool. It's nice to be in a space that already has kind of its own ethos, Uh and it was something that really is aligned with what Satellite's uh, ideology is as well. Um, It's nice because it has its own community in a way, and it feels like it's sort of a cross-pollinization of creative minds. And the space itself is really unique and interesting too, and the open open air format is really nice, the warehouse space is cool. I just think um, overall this was a really nice transition for us, our first time leaving Um, Miami which we know really well into the Austin scene which is like a really really strong arts community and we wanted to come Come and keep Austin weird, but also show a lot of deference for for this space and the people who make it what it is
1: So you were familiar with Museum of Human Achievement before you guys came here?
3: Brian had heard from, about it from friends, and then came and did a tour and like sent over the information to us. Used to be a Sex Toy Factory, all these really really fun tidbits, and the fact that it had its own like studios and like a running space with its own kind of community around it was really very attractive.
1: What do you mean? Was this like related to South by that you decided to do it here now? Were you like, let's do a thing in Austin? Let's find a space. Austin for has
3: been a city. Uh, with people that we've worked with before. We're not entirely new to Austin. There's some curators that we have and people who have worked here before and have, you know, lived here even. And for that reason, there's always been some kind of an Austin connection, but not... um, So, Brian works with Dan, and Dan did the music. And okay. Dan and Brian used to be in a band together in New York. Oh, cool. Yeah, so things like that that are, like, really cool, and he curated all the music and all that kind of good stuff. Um, like, he brought on, I believe, Holodeck and all of that. So there's some, like, little connections here and there. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, um, like, our curator for performance, Quinn, like, worked into our community and brought a lot of people from Houston, a lot of Austin-based performance artists, too.
1: Yeah, did you have a lot of uh, people who applied or the submission process yeah there was a good amount of people
3: who applied i think the difficulty of this being our first time is there's some hesitation you know okay you haven't done Austin before i think i'm gonna Mm -hmm. see how the first one goes i hear it's a really cool community but isn't south by only really about music or tech or whatever so they to some people who had reservations, of course, um, but for the most part, like a lot of these people were people we already knew who mm-hmm. were like, "Okay, I trust you. I think this is going to be great." Or they looked into the venue and like, "Oh, this venue is really cool. It's going to be like a great place for me to put my work in." Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like a massive number of applications like Miami is, where there's like an actual, uh, a steadfast like Basel community of people who are like, "I want to be seen in Basel," that sure. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people who believe in the art of like the travel traveling and using new spaces and having the chance to, like, share their work with the community, like, here in Austin. So I think it was, like, yeah, not as huge, but the space is also ah, smaller, yeah. so we can't take as many exhibitors as, oh, like, yeah. like, I think in um, Miami we had a 33,000 square foot space, mm-hmm. open air format. This is 7,500 square feet, so we were a bit more selective. This was a, a tighter curation this time around. Be, like, very careful about who could be in here, because not all the work is going to work well, mm-hmm. you know? And that's Brian, as creative director.
1: Yeah, I mean, cause I, I mean, it feels like a lot smaller than what I, you know, last saw from you guys, and also just sure. seeing how much of Central Texas is actually involved. Yeah. in the In the fair. Yeah. is interesting too. Yeah,
3: I really like that. I, we really. I mean, most of our sponsorships, things like Topo Chico and all these other people, we just really wanted to make sure when we came out, we were repping them as much as possible. I think you all are great, and we hope that you like us. When we come back, we can continue working with you, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it's so great,
1: and I think you picked, like, the perfect spot in time for it to happen here.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: And that concludes the final day of the Satellite Art Show in Austin, Texas. There are four other podcasts we recorded at the fair, so if you liked this episode, make sure to check those out too. I want to again thank today's guest host, Rebecca Marino. Thanks for listening, and go see some art!